The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27. <clears throat> we read in the first 10 verses, that's our sermon text for today. You'll find that on page 833 of uh, your pew Bible, Matthew 27, the first 10 verses. This is the word of God. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the, into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with, the pot, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our need for you is absolute in speaking and in hearing and having enjoyment of you and your Son. Lord, we absolutely need you. Have mercy upon us then, we pray. Give us grace that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight. For we pray this in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're nearing the climax of Matthew's gospel, indeed the climax of the whole of Scripture, uh, the crucifixion of our Lord and his subsequent resurrection. And we pause for just a moment this morning in our text at the beginning of that narrative. We find in this narrative uh, the actions of the Jews and of Judas toward our Lord, uh, actions which have consequences not only for our Lord, but for the Jews and for Judas in particular. Here we see those who have silenced their consciences to enable them to act in such a wicked way. And we see Judas, whose conscience can remain silent no longer, and he turns from his actions, but he turns in regret and remorse, but not in repentance. He turns in regret, but not repentance. Because you see, repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. 
It's a remarkable work in a sinner, a spirit-wrought work whereby we are turned away from ourselves and we're turned to the mercies and the kindnesses of God in Christ Jesus. Repentance leads us to life, whereas regret and remorse, as we see in Judas, simply lead to death. We'll see that today, the difference between worldly regret and godly repentance in the life of Judas. You can see that the text before you is really in two sections. The first two verses, obviously, uh, where we see the plotting of the chief priests and elders. If we could describe that, we would say this is the darkness of souls with no regrets. The darkness of souls with no regrets. And then from verse 3 to the end of our section, we see the hopelessness of a soul with worldly regret. The hopelessness of a soul with worldly regret. First of all, the darkness of souls that have no regrets. You'll note in verse 1 of chapter 27, we have a timestamp when morning came. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. We understand Jesus has been arrested the previous evening. He's been on trial most or all of the night. Now when morning comes, literally that moment when morning arrives, 6 a.m., we find the chief priests and the rulers of the Jews continuing to plot how they might put Jesus to death. Just think on that verse for one moment, friends. It's one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture. The chief priests, those responsible for the worship, the formal worship of God's people in the temple, those who rendered sacrifices day by day. The elders of the people of God, those trusted with the governance on a day-to-day basis of God's people, the covenant people, here we find them not preparing the people to receive Messiah, but plotting to put him to death. It's one of the great tragedies in all of Scripture. Those entrusted with preparing people to receive Messiah are here found seeking to put him to death. Verse 2 tells us that part of that plot is to deliver Jesus over to Pilate. They bound him, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. We need to understand this is a surreptitious act. It's a secretive act. It's done under the guise of the breaking dawn. William Hendrickson says that Jesus must be rushed off to Pilate before the crowds know what is going on because they lived in fear of the crowds. This is not normal, the normal way of dealing with their problems. Notice they deliver him to Pilate. That's interesting also. Tells us much about those who have a darkened heart, who hate their Lord. Uh, Much of those who have silenced their conscience. They deliver Christ over to Pilate. If you know anything about the, uh, the times in which our Lord was living, we'll know, first of all, the Jews hated the Romans. I mean, the hatred was real. But the darkness of their heart and the silencing of their consciences goes further with Pilate's involvement. First of all, he's a Roman governor. Second of all, he's a despised Roman governor. 
A cursory glance at the history will tell us how Pilate has been instrumental in the death of many Jews, slaughtering Jews. He went out of his way, as it were, to make an enemy of the Jews. He is public enemy number one as far as the Jews are concerned. But here we find the chief priests and the elders setting aside all their problems, indeed setting aside all their supposed principles, so that they might employ Pilate in the death of their Lord. They could not put him to death. They needed the Romans. Here we see men not of high principle, not men of the Torah, the law of God. We see men who have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They're prepared to do anything with anyone to rid themselves of the Christ. They have a darkened mind. They have a silenced conscience. Notice if we can transgress into the next section, even when Judas comes to them, verse 4, and says, I've sinned against innocent blood. What's their reaction? What is it to us? See to it yourself. He had changed, they had not. Verse 6, they fail to see the contradiction in their own behavior. They take the money that Judas has thrown down on the floor before them, and they start debating what they're going to do with it. Well, we can't put it into the temple treasury. Why? It's blood money. And who paid the blood money? They did. They created the blood money. They took the contract, as it were, out on Jesus' life. And they're so wrapped up in their scruples as to where this money should go, they can't see their own deep and dark sin. They've got blood on their hands. Notice also the comment there down in verse 9 about them. After all this, they buy the field. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price on him on whom a price had been set, by son of the sons of Israel. That's the tragedy here. Some of the sons of Israel, indeed the chief men of the sons of Israel, no regrets, because they've silenced their consciences with respect to Jesus. Friends, what a lesson there is for us here today. It's often the case, or sometimes the case we should say, not often, sometimes the case, that the people with the hardest of hearts are found within the church. Convinced of their own righteousness, to quote a modern poet, they're never more right than when they're wrong. Silenced consciences. Perhaps some of them were awakened at Pentecost, it's hard to tell, but largely this is a narrative of those who have silenced their consciences and they are spiritually dead. Let us take heed to ourselves. Let us take heed to ourselves that we do not ignore the voice of God in his word and the voice of God in our own consciences. Let's take further heed to ourselves as we enter the narrative of a person who historically had silenced his conscience, Judas, and now his conscience is coming back to trouble him in a way he simply cannot deal with. Judas, we see verse 3 following, is a hopeless soul. A hopeless soul with worldly regret. 
The contrast here is between regret and repentance. Remorse and repentance, they are not the same thing. And this text and the rest of Scripture makes it clear. Here we see Judas in verse 3 changing his mind. We read that there, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. What was it that caused the change of mind? An external circumstance, something outside himself. He saw that the one who is innocent was condemned as guilty. He changed his mind. We might think, well, that's great. It's a good start. But the verb to change one's mind is used here and elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. It carries the connotation of being sorry after the event. Sorry after the event. Something's happened, and there's a regret, even in Judah's case, a remorse that that event has ever happened. Uh, Morally speaking, it's a neutral verb. It doesn't tell you one way or another whether it's a good activity. It's used positively in Matthew's gospel, but it's not the common Greek word for repentance. It's not the common Greek word for repentance. In other words, if we can say this of Judas, and we have to be careful saying this, he's changed his mind, but not his heart. And we see that manifested in actions of a changed mind and not a changed heart as we move through the rest of the passage. He returns the money. Well, that's good, we say, yes. He returns the money. Uh, He tells the, the chief priests and the Uh, the, the, the elders, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And then he goes out and hangs himself. He goes out and hangs himself. You see, Judas is a man who in life has been characterized by unbelief, is now in his death also characterized by unbelief. How do we know that? Scripture tells us. John 17 verse 12 calls him the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Scripture's testimony is clear on Judas. Moreover, we can say these acts here are not the acts we would generally expect of repentance. They're the acts of regret and the acts of remorse. You see, friends, repentance leads to life, at least spiritually. It leads to life. It leads us to God, to Christ. But regret and remorse simply produce bitterness and sorrow and an overwhelming sense of personal guilt. So we ask ourselves, what is the difference? Can we delineate some differences from Scripture between the idea of regret or remorse and repentance. What is regret? What is remorse? Well, regret is a softer version of remorse. Nonetheless, it's still a strong reaction in us, isn't it? It's, It's the idea, the thought that we wish something had never happened, or we had never done something, or we had never said something. And make no mistake, this can be very personal in our lives. Which one of us here today cannot look back on multiple events in our lives and wish we had never done that thing or never said that thing? 
whether the actions themselves were sinful that we did or they led to trouble for someone else. We regret that that thing happened. And regret frequently leads to a troubled conscience. Remorse, even, that something happened. That's very different to repentance. In repentance, we see that sin for what it is, but we also see the mercy, the goodness, and the kindness of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not directed in upon ourselves in regret, in repentance, as we are in regret. In repentance, we're directed out of ourselves. It's important we think this through. I think we can find at least five distinctions between this idea of worldly regret and godly repentance. Five distinctions. First, regret is natural. Repentance is supernatural. Perhaps that's the most foundational, fundamental difference between the two. Regret is naturally produced in us. Repentance is supernaturally produced in us. Regret happens because we're made in God's image. And we're made with the law on our hearts. We're made with a conscience. Simply stated, because we're made that way, when we sin, our conscience troubles us. That's true for all men. We cannot but help feel regret or even remorse when we've sinned. We know that man seeks to suppress uh, his conscience, as we've seen Judas do all his life, especially through Christ's ministry. That's what regret is. It's naturally produced in us simply by who we are. But repentance is supernatural. It's a work of the sovereign God. It's a work of grace in us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is spirit wrought in the child of God. Yes, we have troubled consciences because of our sin. But through that troubled conscience, indeed, in that troubled conscience, the Spirit is working. You see, a troubled conscience in the hands of the Holy Spirit is a most blessed thing indeed. It's through the Word. Through the conscience, we're convicted of our sin, and we look out to see Christ. Yes, repentance is a most supernatural reality. Secondly, regret does not acknowledge sin properly, where repentance sees sin as God sees it. Regret does not acknowledge sin properly, whereas repentance sees sin as God sees it. We see Judas's regret here. We even see remorse. He knew he had done something wrong, but he had no real apprehension of the seriousness of his own sin. He knew he had sinned against innocent blood, but he did not know that he had sinned against the Son of God. He had no appreciation for whom his sin was against. But repentance, as our catechism tells us, produces in us a true sense of sin. Moreover, our catechism tells us that uh, we have grief and hatred towards that same sin in repentance. The Spirit awakens us in repentance, first of all decisively at our conversion, and then on a daily basis thereafter. There's a realization of who God is, of who we are, 
of what our sin is in his sight, and the Spirit makes us understand that reality. As one writer says, in repentance we take God's side against ourselves. We see ourselves as God sees us. We understand our sin, because repentance takes sin seriously. Third, regret focuses upon self, repentance upon God, the offended. Regret focuses upon self, repentance on the offended. We see this clearly in Judah's life. His remorse was great. He realized he'd blown it in a big way. Moreover, he was overwhelmed by his remorse. And what did that remorse do to him? It had him looking in. He looked to himself. That's all he could see. What have I done? Was his final thought. It's a terrible final thought. Because looking in, friends, all we find is condemnation. All we find is disaster. We are right to be overwhelmed when we simply look in. But repentance repentance has us look towards the offended. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Of Repentance has us looking to God. It most certainly has us to look in because we look at our own sin, but we don't stop there. We look to God. And in him we see abundant mercy, marvelous grace, profound and far-reaching kindness. We look out. We look up. One pastor says that faith, including repentance, is essentially extrospective. It looks out. Yes, it must look in to see sin, but it looks out for the answer to that sin. Repentance will always lead us back to the beautiful green pastures of our Lord. Fourth, regret doesn't seek to deal with the consequences, but repentance does. It's true here that Judas returned the money in his regret, but frankly, taking the money was the least of his injuries against his Lord. He should have repented. He should have turned to his Savior, even if he physically couldn't go to his Savior in that moment. He should have turned to his Savior. He simply worried about consequences. But repentance effects in us confession, restitution, if needs be, and obedience. Repentance deals with the consequences. And here's the wonder of repentance dealing with consequences. It's not us who principally deals with the consequences. It's Jesus. He takes the penalty. He pays the obligation for our sin. And in so doing, he grants us his spirit so that we might daily repent. We might confess our sin when we've sinned. We might give restitution if needs be, and we might endeavor after new obedience. You see, we're directed towards Christ. And in him, dear friends, in him we find the full answer for all our troubles. 
And fifthly, regret is fundamentally about externals. Repentance is fundamentally about the heart. We see this in Judas. He turns in on himself. He turns in on himself to the point of no return. He went out, having come to the end of himself, with no hope, and he hung himself because he couldn't put it right. And yet repentance deals with a heart change. It's remarkable what God does for us in repentance. A true heart change in the one who has sincerely repented, the mighty spirit working that remarkable change in us. You see, friends, Judas here is a picture of worldly, faithless regret. And his end shows that very reality. Verses 7 to 9, which I've touched on already, remind us of how the Jews take counsel. What are they going to do with the money? They can't put it into the treasury because it's blood money. They go and buy a field. In accordance, in accordance with the scriptures, we read there verse 9. And it's described there in verse 7 as the potter's field as a burial place for strangers, not for God's people. The alien within their midst. He's buried in the field of blood. As tragic as his life was, so was his death and his burial. According to the scriptures, the Jews took that money, the prophecy of Jeremiah, 30 pieces of silver, the sons of Israel, they gave for them the potter's field as the Lord directed. You'll notice that that text from Jeremiah reminds us, that text from Jeremiah reminds us that even this was part of of the will of God. That is to say, friends, there's not one aspect. If we think of it in a literary sense, there's not one verb, one sentence, one letter, one punctuation mark that is outside of the control of God. This must happen to fulfill the will of God. And in that, friends, there is confidence for the Christian. So what are we taking away, dear friends, from today's text? If nothing else, we must ensure each one of us present here today that we're not filled with worldly regret, but that we have genuine repentance. There's a simple identifier of that in our lives. In repentance, we're led back to God. In regret, we're left with ourselves whether you're a Christian or whether you've not professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we all need to continually and daily repent. Today is a day of repentance for Christian and the unbeliever alike. Every day is a day of sincere repentance. But I wonder if any of you have struggled, as I've met many who have struggled with repentance, and the quality of repentance in your life. As I'm researching this this week, I came across a comment from a Christian 
And the comment is this, I find I am still somewhat concerned to repent correctly, lest our Lord find my repentance less than sincere or complete. How much repentance is good enough repentance? How sincere a repentance is repentance? Well, you've already said that there's such a thing as regret and remorse, which is not repentance. So we at least have to ask ourselves that question. Is my repentance truly repentance? But I want to caution us in that we don't measure our repentance falsely. Have you repented enough, dear friend? Have you repented sincerely enough? When is repentance true repentance? There's a sense in which, dear friends, we would have to say that all our repentance is to a degree insincere and insufficient. Every time we repent, it is not perfect repentance. It is not sinless repentance. It's never pure. It's never sinless. It's never enough. But if your repentance, dear friend, is wrought by the Holy Spirit, then we can categorically say it is enough. Because we're not saved by our repentance. Repentance didn't die on the cross. Jesus did. We find ourselves, the Puritans used to say, having to repent of our repentance. But friends, the mercy and grace of God covers it. The mercy and grace of God covers our failed repentance, covers our insincere, half-hearted, lukewarm repentance. God receives it because it's in and through Christ. There's a great blessing of godly repentance. It's this. God accepts it. God accepts such repentance. Why? Because he has worked that repentance in us. Repentance is a saving grace wrought in us by the Spirit. The Father will not reject that which the Spirit has done. And in repentance, dear friend, the weight and the obstacle of your sin, my sin, is removed from our shoulders. Uh, and we know that Christ has done that at the cross, but there's still a weight of it, isn't there? There's still the guilt of it at times. I've done this again. How can I be a child of God? Believe and repent and get on with life. That's what our Lord has called us to do. Repentance removes that barrier of the experience of sin between us and God. God has wrought this grace in our lives. It's a wonderful blessing, a wonderful work. Regret, dear friends, leads to bitterness and hopelessness. Repentance leads to hope and joy and restoration and friendship and intimacy with God and man. Repentance grants, its, grants us peace of conscience before God. Thomas Boston said, Upon our turning to God, we have more restored to us in Christ than was ever lost in Adam. 
God says to the repenting soul, I will clothe you with the robe of righteousness. I will enrich you with the jewels and graces of my spirit. I will bestow my love upon you. I will give you a kingdom. Son, daughter, all I have is yours. We just sung these words, did we not? The while I fain would tread the heavenly way, evil is ever with me day by day. Yet on my ears the gracious tidings fall. Repent, confess, thou shalt be loosed from all. Let's pursue that godly repentance. But let's do it resting on the Savior for mercy, for grace. Finding only in him everything that is perfect for faith, for repentance, and for life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we bless you and magnify you. That what you have called of us, you provide. That the duties that you have laid upon us, you put your spirit in us. So that we might obey you. Indeed, forgive us for a failure of sincere repentance. And grant us that spirit to strive more and more, to see your grace, to see your kindness, and endeavor to walk in new obedience. Bless this word to our hearts, Lord God, now even as we come to your table. Speak to us of forgiveness, of your mercy, of restoration, of union with our blessed Savior, that we might see ourselves not only in sin as you see us, but we might see ourselves as you see us in grace as your children. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.